Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intracasso. During this podcast, we'll discuss medical malpractice, MedMal, or alternatives to reform medical liability. With me to discuss the topic by phone is Ms. Janice Mulligan. Welcome, Jan. Hi. Thank you for uh, your time today. As always, let me begin with some uh, brief uh, background or context. For many years, medical malpractice policies have been viewed as substantially flawed. Therefore, reforms have been long sought, moreover, by the Republican Party as a way of reducing health care costs. During the just-ended federal shutdown, proposals to pass a continuing resolution or to win votes in the House included reforming MedMal by placing federal limits on medical liability damages. From the healthcare industry's perspective, the threat of malpractice litigation forces doctors to practice what's termed defensive medicine, whereby physicians test and treat to excess. While estimates of what MedMal costs vary widely, in part because defining exactly what defensive medicine means is notoriously difficult, one estimate published in 2010 found the medical liability system in some costs two or costs. $55 billion, or 2% of annual health care spending. For those harmed, very few patients or their families pursue litigation, in part because litigation is expensive, time-intensive, and awards vary significantly even for similar injuries. Again with me to discuss medical malpractice is Janice Mulligan. Ms. Mulligan's bio is posted on the website. Before we begin, let me add finally, Jan's comments are her own. Again, Jan, thank you for your time. It's appreciative. appreciated. Let me start with this question or topic. Uh, maybe, maybe more than others, healthcare care um, lends itself to a good deal of misinformation. Let me begin by asking then one basic question. How prevalent are medical claims or med mal claims, or how many pursue civil litigation? Obviously, it varies from um, state to state, but the trend is downward. There are less civil filings uh, nationally overall than there have been in the past. Many people will ask why. You'd think in a time of a recession there'd be more filings. But the cap on damages has unfortunately limited access to the courthouse. There are large groups of people, low-wage earners, children, elderly, uh, that can't find lawyers to take the cases because it's just too expensive and the amount that they can be awarded under the cap on damages is sometimes less than the cost of prosecuting the case. I don't mean cost of attorney's fees. Those have been capped as well. I mean the cost of expert witnesses. So there's a downward trend seen by many as limiting access to justice for a number of people. And let me just add, this is particularly curious, this trend, when you factor the rate of medical errors, which are estimated anywhere from being the third to the sixth cause, leading cause of death uh, in this country. Let me go to uh, next question. Um, how do you assess this issue that I noted in my intro, this issue of defensive medicine? It's interesting because, as you also noted, it's difficult to get a definition and to, it's like nailing down jello trying to figure out what defensive medicine really is. We do know that the United States has uh, a much broader uh, base of testing than other countries, but it also uses more medical devices than other countries, and it involves a lot more hospitalizations and a lot more expensive hospitalizations. So if what we're talking about is using resources, um, yeah, we use them a lot. 
Why do we do it? There's different studies that talk about different reasons. One is that the medical devices and the tests are also very expensive, and it's a way of reimbursement. So they're profit centers as well. Um, I think the United States, for example, has more MRIs and CAT scans per capita than every country in the world except Japan. Um, but they're very expensive devices to have. Certainly we like it when they can help to make a uh, diagnosis. But is the use of such devices and tests, equipment, defensive medicine? Is it profit center? Is it helping to make a diagnosis easier? I think that's in the eye of the beholder. Then, of course, there's the problem of false positives. And I'll also uh, note, or let me ask, um, there's discussion about how much time physicians actually have to spend in court or what's the chance of their actually having to face uh, litigation throughout their career. How substantive is that argument? It depends upon the specialty. Uh, I think uh, obstetricians perhaps more often are sued than other specialties. Some specialties have been um, noticing a dramatic decline. For example, anesthesiologists. Uh, anesthesiology used to be one of the most uh, sued professions, if you will, of any of the specialties until they instituted more management systems. They were the first of the specialties to follow what the airline industry does, and that looks at what near misses are in, in airplane accidents and says, how can we learn from this? Anesthesiologists, by following that model and identifying where problems were occurring with anesthetics, were able to dramatically reduce the number of errors, the number of deaths, and as a result, they're sued less than anyone else, and, and thankfully it's because there's greater patient safety. So a lot of the I'm, I'm so sorry I didn't mean to no 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 go ahead. So a lot of the uh, question in terms of how often are they sued uh, in doctors in general it, the answer is different across the board depending upon the type of doctors. In terms of how much time do they spend in court, very few cases ever make it to the courthouse steps. So the answer to that question is very little. What does appear to be very very time consuming for medical professionals is administrative time. Uh, the time spent on billing payment collection information, the time spent on credentialing, the time spent on administration and what's required is astronomical. And in fact, that's one of the identified costs of why American healthcare is more expensive than other countries. Exactly. Before we go to uh, possible remedies, let me just ask you um, otherwise the flaws in the system. And, and that's what you read relative to um, medical students. Uh, perhaps avoiding certain subspecialties, uh, physicians quitting their practices prematurely, either fleeing certain states or actively choosing to move to others. What, what do you make of all these other sort of explanations? Well, you know, it's easy to make allegations, but then it's more difficult to find data to support it. So let's talk about um, physicians fleeing states where there's caps on damages. In fact, California's had the cap on damages since 1975, went into effect in 1976, and yet the Los Angeles Times had a front-page article on why California's losing so many doctors just a couple years back. So if, in fact, they were fleeing because of uh, they wanted to go to states where there were caps on damages, we would expect California to have an influx of doctors, right? right? So the exact opposite has happened. So I don't know of any data that's been shown that doctors actually flee states that don't have caps on damages. Uh, rather, 
it does appear to be something with lifestyle choices. Um, when I teach residents and medical students, I'm amazed to find out that oftentimes they don't want to be on call all night long. They don't want to have to work at a hospital where they're going to be required to work long hours. Some uh, states, it started in New York, um, limit the number of hours residents have to work. And as a result, if we look at what specialties do doctors go into, sometimes it has to do with lifestyle choices and what will be less intensive and less intrusive in their lifestyle. I don't fault them for that, but it's a factor that um, seems to be bearing out in terms of why certain specialties are getting more or less number of interns and residents. Let me, let's then go to remedies or proposed remedies. And let me start with this idea of a safe harbor. This is the idea where doctors are protected if they prove they follow national standards or evidence-based guidelines. This was proposed by, amongst others in D.C., by the left-leaning Center for American Progress. What do you make of the safe harbor proposal? You know, uh, through the American Bar Association, we've looked at that issue at length, and it depends on how it's used. But I have to tell you before I answer the question that it's my understanding that doctors don't want these safe harbors once they learn what it means because a safe harbor really tells a doctor what choices they must make in terms of testing and in terms of treatment. And the medical profession values its independence and its ability to use its best judgment. Now, why would there be a, a question about safe harbors? I mean, it sounds like it would be good for everybody, right? But it also would provide guidelines that have to be followed. So if there's a safe harbor and the doctor doesn't meet what is required, then is it invisible evidence to show that the doctor was negligent and violated the standard of care? Uh, that's a problem for doctors. Also, there's a real practical problem in the sense that Standards of care or standards of practice evolve over time, and they change, and they change sometimes very quickly, and they're also variable from profession to profession. So what a plastic surgeon may say is a, a set standard for doing certain types of uh, skin graft procedures, you may have another uh, specialist, a surgeon, disagree on that should be done. So there's no consistency among the various specialties, and there's no agreement about what happens if they don't meet those guidelines. And furthermore, it may take away some uh, patient independence. So while it sounds like a good idea on the face of it, in practice it doesn't seem to have much support. Yes, exactly. Good in theory, hard on practice. And I might add, too, this is the, per your point, this is the complaint often heard in the profession that it leads to cookbook medicine, which, yes. of course, physicians loathe. Let me, let me go to um, there was, there is a small amount of money in the Affordable Care Act, uh, grant money to the states to study med mal reforms. It's uh, $50 million in grant money. But through that process of including that provision in the law, there was a proposal that the president seemed to endorse, and this was uh, termed the Early Disclosure of Medical Errors and Mediation, sometimes referred to as sorry works. Uh, what, what is this, and how do you assess this alternative? You know, it's a good idea if you can avoid litigation. I call it preventative law. Everybody wins. The problem is, as usual, with the devil being in the details, and that is sometimes people aren't permanent stationary early on, and so there's a question of how much time would they have before they'd have to know the nature and certainty of their damages or injuries. The second is, how do you value it? Um, there's an overlap here between early disclosure and mediation which is meant to be voluntary 
and involuntary system being the health courts. And the problem with it is if you trade, uh, and let's say you make it mandatory, you must resolve the case or there will be draconian results. Um, if you require that, then how do you look at the question of fault? Determining fault in these systems is very difficult and very expert-intensive. That's why we started out this discussion about limiting access to the courthouse. And with a cap on damages, sometimes the cost of expert witnesses is prohibitively expensive and exceeds the value of the case. So if you say that, okay, we're going to cut the cost of experts out and then you go to more of a no-fault system, more like workers' comp, then you've got a problem because you're basically ensuring every bad result. And as we know, unfortunately, people die every day. But there's a big difference between a mistake happening and medical malpractice. Not every adverse event is malpractice and can be brought through a court system. So when you get into the early disclosure mediation health court arena, you've got policy decisions to make about what's more important, proving responsibility or compensating the patient. Well, you mentioned health courts, and let's go to that next. So this is the, as you also said, the no-fault approach. And this um, uh, type of resolution is used uh, in several European countries, uh, including Sweden and Denmark, um, whereby um, it's not the adversarial uh, system. It's an administrative approach, um, uh, no-fault approach, um, Studies show that when implemented, it, it can limit med mal costs, while the upside is um, uh, the number of injured patients have seemingly increased uh, in receiving compensation. So um, specifically, what's your assessment then of how this is done via health courts overseas? Well, that's an excellent question, and, and I would love to have us follow the model, but unfortunately we've seen how difficult it's been to even have the Affordable Care Act implemented. And when you bring up countries like Sweden and Denmark that have this um, no-fault system, we can't forget the fact that they have universal health care, which the Affordable Care Act isn't even universal health care, but they have universal health care, and they have a safety net so that if somebody isn't able to work anymore for whatever reason, um, they're able to be compensated. They're able to stay in their home. This country doesn't believe in such things. We call that socialism to an extent. So if you're going to follow a no-fault system, for health care uh, errors to be addressed, you've got to look at what other resources are available to those people. In the United States, the number one cause of personal bankruptcies is medical bills that can't be paid, people mm -hmm. losing their jobs. So, no, seriously. No, I know, yes, and, yes. And, and, and Two-thirds, so right, yes. We can't pick and choose from different systems, um, such as health courts, uh, no-fault systems, unless we also take the other safety net items that are available for those people. So if we want to go to a socialist system where we then have no fault for health care, but we provide for people's lost earnings and uh, livable wage and universal health care, um, that's a much larger issue that I don't think the country's ready for if we see the problems we have even trying to get into place the Affordable Care Act. So the problem here is context. Moreover. I'm sorry? The problem here is moreover context. Yeah, yeah, it's it's what is available. I mean, if you're going to limit the amount of compensation that you give people for medical errors, 
then the government's going to have to pay for those people one way or the other because they're still going to need housing and shelter, they're going to need food, and they're going to need medical care for those injuries. Somebody has to pay for it. The health care system as it currently exists in the United States makes it more fault-based so that if you create a medical error that was a totally avoidable and as a result there's a catastrophic and expensive result, then the person that caused the problem, if it be a doctor or if it be a driver in a car that runs a red light, that our system believes the person at fault should pay for it. If not, then the government has to step in and pay for it because somebody has to. So let's go now that we've run through these three possible alternatives. You did mention California's uh, revision to its laws in 1975. Texas reformed its laws in 2003. Other states have tried other um, uh, approaches beyond capping uh, damages. Um, what can you say further about the success of California? What's your assessment of Texas or other state initiatives? And in so, could you just clarify uh, for the listeners, when we talk about damages, there are compensatory and punitive damages. And let's be clear on when you say we're capping damages, what we're exactly capping. Okay, there's compensatory and punitive, but compensatory is also made up of general damages for pain and suffering, unsightly scars, uh, loss of quality of life, the types of things that you can't put a price tag on and buy at a store. And compensatory damages are also made up of things like lost earnings, amount of future medical care, which you can put a price tag on and, and quantify. So caps on damages typically in, have been on pain and suffering, the type that you can't put a price tag on, although that's not universal. Some states have what's called a hard cap that caps it across the board, including medical bills. But California has a, a cap on these, these, what they call soft damages, pain and suffering, of $250,000. That's a cap regardless of uh, when it occurred. When this went into place in 1975, it you know, it's still the same amount, 250 today, so many so years later. So it's not inflation adjusted. It, there's no cost of living adjustment. And um, the California experience is difficult to analyze because while premiums did go down in California, they didn't go down in just when this uh, cap on damages was instituted. They went down a few years later when Prop 113 passed, which was an initiative in California that required insurance companies to go to a hearing and to get approval before they could increase insurance premiums. So many uh, things have been written about this and many studies show that the cost of the premiums more or less being stable in California is more likely attributable to that Prop 13, 113 that capped it across the board for insurance premiums for car, house, etc., not just medical malpractice. So then you ask the question of Texas because Texas didn't have that um, initiative about capping all premiums. So we look at Texas and we say, what happened? Did the, did the limits on lawsuits in Texas cause health insurance premiums to go down? Did it cause health care to become more affordable? And the answer is no. The Gallup poll for 2012 shows that um, the average in between 2003 and 2010, the average price of Texan health insurance went up 46%. And Texas had one of the highest rates of uninsured people to begin with, and now it's even higher. They have one of the highest in the country. So unfortunately, the cap on damages in Texas didn't work to make insurance more affordable or to make health care more affordable either. Confounding factors, as you suggest. We have time for just sort of um, your resolution or your answer, what you think is the best answer 
to all this. You seem to suggest that the California system seems to be working fairly well, but what would be the three things, if we're limited to three, what would be the three things that you think most favorably um, get at or most promisingly get at trying to address this issue? Okay, first of all, I don't think the California model does work well, and but that would take another hour. <laughs> so in terms of solutions, um, the Affordable Care Act and allowing, um, if you will, uh, think tanks um, is coming up with some great ideas. Out of Pennsylvania, there's an amazing one. They have the ECRI, which is an evidence-based nonprofit patient safety organization, has been running something called um, near misses. A near miss, like with the airline industry, is you don't wait for planes to hit in the sky and then try and figure out why the accident happened. They look at near misses when there were almost fatal flaws. They've collected data, and with that data, they've been analyzing it in healthcare to figure out how they can make changes and how they can make the system better. They've reported over 2 million. Um, near misses, if you will, and they've been analyzing it, and they've been making changes to their healthcare system with some really good results. So I'd look at Pennsylvania and the ECRI uh, near misses and adverse event research. Second, Medicare and Medi-Cal, they're looking at never events. Similarly, they're looking at, uh, they've identified, I think, 22, no, 28 events that should never occur. They're totally avoidable. And if it occurs, then you know there's something wrong. And they're refusing to pay for that through our health care system and through our government-based um, assistance. I think that's great because that gives a positive reinforcement to try and do things right and to avoid what we know are otherwise avoidable events. Third, I think, preventative health care. Uh, the Affordable Care Act tries to give people incentives to be healthy. If people are healthy and if patient systems are in place for patient safety, then I'm not going to be called and you're not going to need me. And that would make, make me extremely happy because the type of cases and the type of people that we represent um, have had their lives catastrophically ruined because of failures in patient safety. So your your answers are, in sum, to get out in front of the issue and try to avoid the mistakes in the first place, such that that would then, of course, limit uh, the after-the-fact uh, litigation. That's You said it more articulately than I ever could, and I also think by looking at what's gone wrong in the past and trying to figure trends from that and learn the lessons so we don't repeat the mistakes. Yes, yes. Well, Jan, uh, believe it or not, we're at our time boundary, so... <laughs> Uh, I, I thank you for this whirlwind discussion or tour of the subject. Uh, maybe in the future we'll have further time to discuss this more in depth or discuss other states uh, uh, and what they're doing. So with that, thank you very much, Jan. Thank you. I've enjoyed it, and I appreciate the opportunity, David.